right, welcome everyone back to the Field Guide podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Nathan Drutz. I am your local extension educator for Stearns, Benton, and Morrison counties. I cover specifically crop production. And with me, as always, is Michael Cruz. He is your local extension educator out of Houston and Fillmore counties. How are you doing today, Mike? Fantastic, Nathan. How are you doing, sir? Oh, the sun is shining, and as always, that makes me a pretty happy human being. So, well, that's that's always our goal to keep our our co-host over there happy as can be. Oh yeah, you know it. <laughs> so, who do we have on the docket for today, there, Mike? Well, we have the pleasure of actually bringing my my dad back for a follow up conversation uh, from a couple weeks back. Um, if for those who uh, maybe either didn't listen to it or need a little bit of a reminder, my dad is a retired farmer from Northeast Iowa. Uh, primarily over his tenure, he he grew corn and soybeans. Um, but if, again, if you've listened to the last podcast, remember he did everything from you know raising oats and his dad did some alfalfa and grew crazy things like sunflowers and tried to sell those up in Duluth. Um, you know, we talked quite a bit about uh, his equipment, but uh, one thing that we were thinking about bringing him back for, and he agreed to, is uh, talking about his conservation practices. So uh, welcome, Dad. Dad, please say hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, like I had just mentioned um, in our previous conversation, Dad, uh, we had talked briefly at the end there about some of the conservation practices uh, that you would use. Can you uh, give our listeners maybe a little bit of a refresher about uh, what we had talked about, what you have done over your career in farming? Okay. Over my career, most of my conservation practices uh, dealt with tillage, um, the, uh, the implementation of, of, of deep tillage, um, like uh, uh, subsoilers, those types of things. Chisel plow was the first thing we ever did. Uh, my father, and I always re reference him because I learned a lot from my father, but my father was one of the first people to use a chisel plow, and I just, I just took that and ran with it. Uh, crop rotation is something, no-till is something I was a very, probably, if not the first, maybe the first 5% in the state of Iowa that probably dealt in no-till at any on a large scale, there were people that would try it, would would maybe use ten acres and no-till somehow, but never really tried to use it in a in a in a big way. Um, right. My operation, it, it it made me it made me use no-till, but I also wanted to do it for conservation. No-till was a way, and I said that before in the last cast that I needed to I farmed by myself and no-till was a way I, I cut down on the trips that I made over the field, which cut down time. Uh, less use of machinery, less use of time, less use of man manpower. But on the same token, it's also, I was a, a big soil saver if I could, if I could say so. I, I think I made one statement uh, in the past that I did not like watching my field end up down in the road ditch. And right. that, that made no-till a, a priority of mine. So would you say that was your primary driver? You know, I'm thinking back on that uh, conversation you just had or the thing you mentioned about being one of the first to use a chisel plow, right? You know, and these days you go first to use a chisel plow. Like that's some of the stuff we're trying to get away from. We don't do that as much as often, you know, it's like, but you make a good point. You were going from a moldboard plow. And so I'm curious if the soil in the, in the ditch was the, the driving force there. Originally, yes, yes. If you ever, 
and I could, years ago, I could have given you all kinds of examples. I could have driven you down the road and showed you where a moldboard field and the road ditch beside it versus a chisel plowed field. Now I know that has evolved now, but there's just difference of night and day. There was then, uh, and there would be now. Um, so that, yes, yeah, I, it, that was my driving force for that, for the chisel plow, I mean. How about, how about for the other practices that you mentioned? What, what kind of drove you to start considering those? No-till was, was the next, uh, what do I want to say? I, I, the word escapes me, was the next, uh, next best thing, next best step that I could take uh, for several reasons. Uh, time, I keep, I keep referring to time because I was by myself. Trips over the field, which which also dealt with conservation, but it was a driving force for me to to utilize my time in the best way I could, uh, rather than go out with a chip. I can remember my father going out with a disc and then and then a, a field cultivator and then a drag and then planting corn. Can you imagine how long it would have taken me to get over two, 2,200 acres doing that? Right. So, right. Um, less inputs, less machinery and less ground loss, less soil top, top soil loss. I got to say that in a better way. So, so it wasn't just environmental. It was environmental, but it was also economic, right? Combination, combination of all. Yep. Uh, and I would advocate for no-till to this day. I still think that's, that's, I still think it's the best way to go. I'm not sure that you have to suffer much yield if it's done right. So that's the argument you always get. If you no-till, you're not going to grow as good a crops. So, well, I don't necessarily believe that. Okay. Okay. I will. I will just ask a simple question here. You know, I'm always interested in stories, and and one of the things I've always learned over the years is that everyone with their first time no-tilling has a story of how that went. Uh, oftentimes, not very uh, very good story. Uh, oftentimes, it's a story of failure. But uh, I, I'm just kind of curious. Do you remember the first time you started down that pathway and how did that turn out? Uh, I won't, I wouldn't say I specifically remember the very first time I tried it, but I would, I can remember some of the things, the challenges that were, were uh, presented to me that I wasn't ready for. Um, the machinery I had was not designed for not no-till when I started. Um, I had a, I think I did have double disc openers on my planter. But you can imagine if without those, you couldn't do it. But um, the disc openers weren't the big thing. The big thing was trash. I couldn't get rid of the residue out of the way, out of the seed zone, because I didn't have the old, well, I finally got the spider um, whips that go in front. Now I think that's standard equipment. I don't think you even see one without it. They didn't, they didn't hardly exist when I started doing this. Um, let's see, what was it? Trash was the big thing. Weed control was the next. You know, when I was when I started in no-till, all the weed control was was incorporated. Um, whether it be the old, uh, I can trying to think of some of them, the old Sutan or Treflan things, that you know was soil incorporated. Well, I had to get away from those and go to contact herbicides or something over the top, such as my memory's a little bad, but Syncor was one we sprayed over the top on, on beans. I can't remember all the herbicides. That's that's what we did. Uh, so that, that was a hit and miss thing. I did so well, didn't do so well to start with, but it's something that if I was going to continue, I had to get good at. And that was, that was the controlling the trash or getting rid of the trash out of the root zone. Um, 
I did mention at one one time about I always I never got this far, but controlling my tracks for compaction. I I, I was a big compaction thing, it, even to this day. Go go to a field and look at out in the field and all the the poor crops you see on the end rows where we run our, our whether they're big tractors or they're semis or whatever. Those crops usually aren't very good where that is. So I think the compaction thing he'll still holds today. Uh, I think we should pay higher, and maybe maybe farmers do uh, pay attention to it. Track tractors, you know, spread out the weight load and things. But there are there are more more things to do with that than than anybody practices now because it's a well, it's kind of a pain in the backside to do. To expand on that though, I think now with the advent of GPS, that if a, if an individual really wanted to control his tracks in the field, you take the same track every year that, uh, in your farming practice practice so well I, mean, I think maybe somebody should think about that a little bit if you wanted to, if you wanted to really help yourself but uh, I'm kind of old school that way too I like those kinds of things well and I think you bring up an excellent point there because I, I know uh plug here for the university Jody DeYoung Hughes you know she goes up in the helicopter every year and she gets a chance to look over the top of the fields and she can pick out where every every cart grain cart went Every pass from the combine, every pass from the planter, you could tell that just by looking down from above. And so absolutely, you know, that's something where we absolutely recommend anymore, you know, where you want to try to keep in the same tracks year in and year out. And GPS has made that a lot easier. It's oh, very easy to track it. So yeah, no, absolutely. I like that. I like that point. Um, but getting back to this, uh, the conversation around the growing pains and the challenges, and you talked a little bit about how you over, kind of overcame them. Was this something that you were able to make in, in, in one year or was this something that over oh, time that you managed to put, put these practices into place? No, I, I would say, and it's been long enough now, I'm not sure about the number of years exactly, but I don't think I really got good at it. I'm going to use that in quotes so that somebody says I'm, a, I'm not a super farmer or anything, <laughs> but I don't think I really got good at it probably for 10 years. You keep tweaking this and doing something different and you find out what works, what doesn't work. Um, and over that, you understand under that course of 10 years, like herbicides kept getting better and better contact herbicides that we didn't have, you know, when I started down that path got better. So maybe my path to being better at it um, had to do with technology and advancement and in, in either chemicals or, or actually actually varieties of, of, of crops, whether it be soy, corn or soybeans, that that they got more resilient. Um, understand when you when you no-till, you have to deal in colder soils than you do a lot of times after you till the ground, and the the varieties got more resilient and, and tougher to that to to those kinds of conditions. So I don't want to pat myself on the back. Maybe it was something else other than what than I thought I was getting better at it. You know what I mean? Well, anybody who can you know, stick with a uh, a truck sprayer for as long as he did, and, and the uh, you know no till for ten years to figure it out that that's pretty persistent. I, I'd say borderline stubborn, um, yeah, which is probably a fair assessment. Uh, so one of the things, though, Dad, that I that I'm I'm curious about, you know, we we talk in extension about these new practices. Well, we're like we've said in other conversations, we, we go in kind of circles and we come back to some of these things that we've done in the past. Right. But 
um, it's neighborly pressure sometimes or the perception that our neighbors are, are judging us or they're, they're wondering what we're doing, right? And, you know, you said you were an early adapter of the chisel plow stuff. Mm-hmm. You're an early adopter of the no-till approach. And so I'm, I'm curious, um, like, how do you think or did you ever have conversations with your neighbors about what your family was doing, what you were doing? And like, how do you think that uh, went over in the community? Uh, I was probably looked at as, as I might be the, the strong, too strong a word, but as a bit of a rebel, because I didn't do things the way everybody else did them. Uh, as far as no-till, I think it was more curiosity than anything. Hmm. There were a lot of people that were interested, but unwilling to take those kinds of steps to, to change their practices um, for fear it wouldn't work. Right. Um, and nobody likes to be the, the farmer that when they drive down the road and, and I end up with a, with a field full of weeds because I did something wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, I wasn't, that never scared me too much. And, and, it, and honestly, it did happen. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. made the wrong move and, and maybe applied the wrong herbicide and it didn't work or applied it wrong, uh, uh, wrong timing. Um, I was never, never too, too, bad at, at, at field rates and things like that, mm-hmm. but maybe a, of the, the chemistry that I should have been using and I didn't, those types of things, or timing. Timing was essential with, with some of the, the early on herbicides mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. weed. And, and I guess maybe it still is today. I know if you can't let a water hemp get over two inches tall or you can't kill it practically. <laughs> well, I understand that. And that was the types of things, but it, it Back then, the weeds were easier to kill. I know that we don't have the resistance that we talked about right. that, that we, we deal with today. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I said rebel, but I think that was wrong. I think it was more I was looked at with curiosity to see if I could make it work. Mm-hmm. I got lots of, I got lots of questions. Obviously, you yeah. know, what are you doing with this, and why are you doing that? Those types of questions. Um, I can't recall the specific questions, whether it was population. I think a lot of it might have dealt with population. Right. I was never the first guy out planting corn in the spring because I had to wait for the crop, for the soil to, to warm up. I might be a day or two later. Yep. That yep. created that created issues because if you got a wet spring, yeah. you know, yep. there, there was, there's always something that I would tell you when, being one of the early no-tillers is you deal with management you're learning how to manage rather than trying to learn from, from someone else or a book or something that tells you, okay, on this date, you need to do that. Yeah. You had to, I was flying by the seat of my pants, if you will, you know, other than, than trying to get the soil temperature to 52 degrees before you plant it or whatever it might be. Uh, I had to learn those things on my own. Basically I had very little yeah. quote unquote books to learn from or experience. Now books, that's not fair experience to draw from. I right. was, I was my first experience. I was my first experience and yeah. my father a little bit. He yeah. never dealt with no-till, but some of the early things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, it makes me think about a lot of the, again, a lot of the conversations that we have in our, in Nathan's and my current positions where, you know, there, there is no one silver bullet to any of these problems, you know, exactly. it's for every production system, for every family, for every operation. And, you know, one of the examples that I bring up all the time is you got an award for doing all of this conservation, for doing the no-till stuff, for trying these new things. 
and I don't remember if it was the very next year or the year after that, you, the, the ground needed line, right? And you had to change the pH. Well, how do you do that? You spread it and you incorporate it. Okay, well, exactly. that means you started doing tillage over the top. And it's like from the road, if you didn't know exactly what you were doing, it's like, well, he's all did all this conservation stuff. But now he's just going away from it. What's going on? Well, no, it's it's adaptive management. You're dealing with the situation that's at hand, and it's not going to be the same thing year in and year out. Exactly. And you, uh, you, you talked about neighbors in that instance and what they thought of that. And I think I never really got challenged because if, if, if a neighbor of mine would see lime go on the ground, he pretty much knew that it had to be incorporated. Yep. Yep. So I, I, I never really got you know, no neighbor called me up and say, I thought you were a no-tiller. I thought you were, you know, a conservationist and here you are disking up all your, all your ground. Right. I think that was, that was kind of universally understood yep. that lime was one thing you just couldn't get by without, at least then. I don't even know if they have to incorporate lime anymore. Do you? I mean, in certain cases, you, you certainly do. It, it depends, right? Like it's, it's a practice that's still used. Yep. Back then, that's all I knew. I mean, I didn't have any anything to basis that I could spread it out uh, on the top of the ground and have it be as effective as working it into the soil. Yeah, yeah. I can remember doing some, this. I'm probably this is a sidebar I shouldn't even bring up, but I was maybe one of the first people that would spread uh, potash virtually in the middle of the winter. I'd go out if it was the snow wasn't too deep. I wasn't afraid to put it out in the winter time. It was my it was my belief that that it was a salt and it was going to it was going to get down to the soil and it was going to attach to the soil other than a than a complete washout you weren't going to lose it you didn't have to wait till spring and one of the motivating factors was that was time again i didn't want to go out and spread fertilizer when i should have been planting or, or doing whatever you got to re you have to remember i was by myself and i had to make the best of the time i had yeah yeah now you see that done all the time i don't yeah. know if, you know that's not a that's not an uncommon practice well nobody did that yeah. Way back in the ancient times. So when you made that original switch over to no-till, how did you handle the, the fertilizer side of things? You know, because I would assume before that you did a fair amount of incorporation. You, you know, that was kind of a general practice, I assume. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys were doing something else. No, no, I, uh, that was a, that was an ongoing process. I actually tried in furrow or ne next to the seed furrow fertilization. Mm -hmm. I never was very successful with that. I, I don't know if I just didn't know how to get it done right. End up broadcasting most of my fertilizer. Uh, I didn't, I got to, I got to admit, I didn't own a cultivator. I didn't cultivate anything. So there was no working in any, any fertilizer that you might apply. Right. I was, uh, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to recall exactly how I did handle everything. I do. I would tell you this. That was another thing that I started out, and I was might have been one of the early people, at least, of of variable rate technology when it came, and not technology because we didn't have any of that variable rate fertilizer fertilizer application. Uh, it, it occurred to me that that my my sand hill on top of the hill was not going to grow as many crop as much crop as 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 my the low loam soils down the bottom, whether they be you know CSR of, of 90 and the and the hill is up there at, at 65 or something. Sure. So I was I was one of the first people that that would try to fertilize according to soil type. Mm -hmm. uh, 
we didn't have the mapping systems, we didn't have the GPS. It was, it was a very difficult proposition. You can do that to a T right now. When I did it, people thought I was kind of crazy. I was one of, I know I was the first one in my local co-op that grid sampled, uh, you know, took the individual grid. I think that's a common practice now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And it is quite often, yep. And, yep. and back in, well, I've tried to give it in the mid seventies. That was, that was, mm, I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Cutting edge or crazy. It was one of those two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I was on the right track. I was never really good at it because I didn't have the technology to make it work. Um, yeah. I may have, I think as a matter of fact, I may have given up on that because I didn't have the technology to make it work. I knew it would, if I could do it right, but I couldn't get it right without, you know, I can't take a tape measure out and measure up to a certain spot and, and you know, like you can, you just couldn't do it. I just didn't have the right stuff to do what I wanted to do with, with it. Yeah. I got off on a sidebar. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. I, I honestly want to go on a little bit of a tangent myself here, but first I'm going to ask Nathan if he's got any follow-up uh, questions about what we've been talking about here. Yeah. I mean, it really, uh, the only question I've got here is, you know, you kind of briefly mentioned that you went infro or an excess seed. So I'm assuming some form of two by two formation. And you said you really didn't have much success with that. What was that just a lack of yield or what were we, what were you dealing with in that scenario? I think it was a lack of knowledge. Okay. Uh, uh, I can remember doing it. I remember I did. I might have had trouble with the mechanics of it, more than more than the more than the thought of it working. You know, laying your 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 P and K next to the row. Uh, I think thinking back on it, I think it had more to do with mechanical problems that I couldn't get it applied correctly. Whether it be the the the, the furrow, whether it be the the delivery system, I'm not sure what happened there, but I never was really good at it. That was one of those things that I probably shouldn't have given up on, but I did. Right, right. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm going to go off on my little tangent here. Um, and I'm going to ask you this. It's like, okay, so those are the conservation practices that you did and the things that you've had some success with. If you take a time machine back, you know, put yourself back in those production years, are there any other conservation specific practices that you think you would like to try or would have wanted to try now that you think about it? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I tried everything I thought of practically. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah, you hit me on a, on a side one there. Let me think about that for just a second. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll fill in some thought space here for you because you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that we can keep soil in place. Right. We, we oftentimes think when we're dealing with a typical corn soybean rotation, we have these what we call refer to as shoulder seasons, right, where we have these seasons where there isn't much crop up, right, there isn't much vegetation on the soil, right. And so yeah, I am talking about the potential for cover crops and the things with that. Um, but we had also talked about in the previous podcast how you had grown small grains and you had also grown, well, your dad grew alfalfa um, and, and things of that nature, you know. So it's, it's not necessarily the machinery that you pull through it all the time, but also the type of rotation and how you manage that as well. You gave me time enough to think about one thing. I, I don't know if this, this goes into the conservation mode or not, but something my dad had tried and something I tried to get, figure out how to do, and that's double crop. Mm. I never got into it. Um, hindsight's 2020. I wish I would have tried it. 
Hmm. I know there were, there were some, there were some people later on that, that tried to do it. Uh, I never, I never, I guess I never pursued it. I think it was one of those things that was out here, you know, in your mind and thinking, yeah, no, that'd be kind of cool to be able to do that. My dad did try to double crop with, with, I think it was rye. Is there, is there like a winter or maybe it was winter wheat. That's been, that's back in the time machine where he wanted to grow wheat and then soybeans behind it in the same year. Okay. I don't know if he was very successful with it or not, but I can remember him trying it, doing it. No. Uh, I never did. Um, you know, my, I'm sitting here at my kitchen table thinking that sounds like it would have been a pretty good thing to try. <laughs> well, especially now that things are getting a little bit warmer as far as climate is concerned. And, you know, oh. you are a little bit closer to the equator than we are up here in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah I'm way down here in God's country, right? Yeah, oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. There. <laughs> I had to get that in. Yeah, there yeah, yeah, yeah. 20, 25 minutes in and we were finally getting real here. Yeah, um, <laughs> Nathan, do you have any other thoughts on, on conservation? Maybe some of the things that you've seen in your area or follow-up questions for my dad. Uh, nothing follow-up, but I th- do believe God's country is actually a lot further south. Well, you know, I, I, I'd like to actually, I think, Nathan, we're probably getting close to the end here. And it's um, maybe it's about time that we go, hey, some closing thoughts, some thoughts on conservation. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll let dad go first here. Uh, um, you know, fill us in if you've got, you know, some parting thoughts on what you did and, you know, maybe some of the things that people can learn from that. I don't know what I did as important as, is as important as what people could do today. Hmm. Um, I, we visited a little bit about the, about the controlling their, their uh, tire tracks in the field. And compaction, as far as that, that has to do more with crop production actually than it maybe does have conservation. Yep. But I think that's something that would could be could be very important to farmers, if, especially with today's technology. If they could really make that work, uh, if you want to take the next step into increase, increasing yields, get rid of compaction. Yeah. And that's you know, I'm, there's there's a multitude of things, but that's something a lot of people don't think about, other than. Yeah. Okay. So I put tracks on my tractor. I got three sets of wheels, um, things like that. There are, there are, to my, to me, there are better venues to go to find ways to, to control compaction. Well, you know, if, if I had any sort of takeaway from what you said today, dad, um, and this has made a lot of, you know, my childhood makes a lot more sense after this conversation. (laughs) Um, it's like, it's, it's this thing about never giving up. Like you had this idea, you felt like you could do it. And like you said, you didn't feel like you even were kind of even at a mastery level or a low mastery level for 10 years, right? It took you, it took you time. And it's not one of these things where year one, you're going to jump into it and whatever you're doing is going to work perfectly. And, you know, the other thing that I would stress here, and this goes kind of across the board is you've got to do what's right for your operation. Southeast Minnesota is a fantastic example of this because we have the driftless region, rolling hills, karst topography. We have landscapes that force you, they should, to have some sort of either really good crop rotation using small grains and alfalfa, something like that or just straight up pasture and, and, you know, grass waterways and things of that nature. So conservation can look different 
in every location. And it is a process. It is a process to figure out how it's going to work for you and how it's going to work for, you know, the environment, your bottom line and everything else. You are so, so right. And it's never just because you decide to do something, whether it be uh, a buffer strip here or, or, or whatever it might be, you might fail at it the first time, but don't go away from it. Yeah. You know, you've got the right idea. Whoever's, whoever decides to do something like that, uh, if you're interest, interested in conserving the soil and conserving Mother Earth, don't give up. Yeah. Stay with it. It, it. it can work. It's just, and it ta- understand it takes management. Nathan, do you have any uh, final parting thoughts here? Well, you know, I think you guys pretty much uh, answered the question I had, I had lined up here. I think that uh, we've gotten some pretty good advice here today. And, and uh, just, uh, you know, really, I guess before we, before we close it out, any, any final word there, uh, uh, Brad, uh, any final word as to what you would like in terms of advice for, you know, growers in, in general in this day and age uh, before, we, before we close up here? if I would say anything to a future grower that we are going to evolve again because we have to out of necessity, otherwise it can fall in a heap. Uh, of course, we, none of us want to see that. I always, th- I always think about the, the yield curve and corn. How long is that going to continue to keep going up and up and up? Well, if we don't keep evolving, like you said, that is not going to happen. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, Brett, for being on our podcast here today. If you guys would like, if our listeners here would like more information, uh, again, you know, you could go to the extension.umn.edu backslash local, and you will find all of the counties listed there. All you have to do is click on your county. You can find a, a extension uh, educator there. We do have 4-H educators in every county. However, AFNR, uh, not so much. However, you know, it, all you have to do is find one of your local or a local extension educator team member. And we are very good about making sure that your question gets answered. So as always, you know, feel free to reach out to myself or Mike there. And we are always, always happy to answer whatever questions that you might have. Again, uh, thanks to Brad for being on our podcast here. Again, thanks to Mike for hosting this with uh, with me here today, and and being you know nice, uh, so nice to invite our, our wonderful guest here today. And I hope that uh, you guys tune in the ne- for the next episode. <laughs>